Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, hello, historians. Um, this seems to be a bit of a pattern, but we've got more sunshine here in lovely Leitrim in Ireland. An absolutely special banking day. I'm uh, out in the cave, my little container, I have my music studio out the back. So it's a little bit like a sauna. Um, I'm uh, dripping, dripping sweat at the moment, but delighted to have as our guest today, Ethan Choran, who is a US, uh, or was, should I say, a US diplomat, yeah, a very learned man on everything Libyan and North African and Middle Eastern, a bachelor's degree from Yale, a master's from Stanford and a PhD from Berkeley, no less. So I'm sure he can tell us a thing or two. But we're, we're here to talk about Libya, Benghazi, and the events that preceded it and happened after it, and the ripple effects that these have had around the world. Uh, not too many people know a lot about this, so really interested to hear what Ethan has to say. And with that, good afternoon from lovely Leitrim. Welcome, Ethan. Thanks very much, uh, Eric. So you might just start. This event, Benghazi, it happened on the anniversary of 9-11 in 2012. And it was the, the US that was attacked with rocket-propelled grenades. Um, but you were in country. You weren't in the embassy. But what were you doing in Libya at that time? Just one little detail. The the um, attack occurred against a, a mission out in Benghazi. The embassy was in Tripoli. There was a lot of uh, confusion in the media after it in the United States about what exactly that uh, that facility did and what its relationship to the mission, to the embassy was. You weren't there. You were nearby. You were holed up, essentially, in a hotel. Yes. Uh, the attack started just after uh, 9.40 at night. I and a colleague were uh, holed up in a hotel, as you said, about, about two miles away. There was a lot of really strange activity going on outside the hotel, even before the attack took place. I was on the phone with the mission, um, basically, as the attack was starting. It was a very uh, extremely uncomfortable uh, uh, a day uh, and and following day, the ambassador was a was a was a friend and former colleague. I didn't learn about his death until the next morning or very early, and we really didn't you know it has to say we really didn't know what was going on. We knew that it was very likely to be an attack against the uh, the mission, but uh, we didn't know if we were targets or you know the hotel was a target or what was what was going on. The lead up to this is very, very important as well. So we obviously had the, the revolution and the, the dictator 
Colonel Gaddafi was removed from power and you've written a, a book on uh, the hidden history of uh, Libya all about all about this. Uh, Ireland has a, a slightly strange relationship to Libya in that the uh, IRA, the Irish Republican Army, uh, had a deal with uh, <laughs> Muammar Gaddafi from 1972 on and several shipments of arms uh, were landed over in Ireland and that kept the IRA at war with the British for a considerable amount of time. A lot of them were, were the shipments were obviously, I will say, caught as well. But uh, that's about as much of a relationship that Ireland really has had has had with Libya. Libya. So the the events. I mean, the run up. You 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 say that this was kind of telegraphed. That it was. It should have been realised that something was brewing under the hood before the events happened. Well, the book, the book is basically a look at the, it tries to provide context for this event, which was sorely lacking in the United States at the time. Essentially, the United, many, most Americans, I think, had very little idea where Libya was or what was at stake. And the, 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 the term Benghazi became this, this sort of symbol for, for domestic political struggle rather than uh, it was not rooted in what was going on in the country, its connections to the revolution that came before that was going on even still still at that time, and American policies in Libya in the decades before it. And as you mentioned before, there's the aftermath of, of Benghazi, which uh, for Americans, I'm arguing, was a, a an extremely important political event. It seemed, and the great irony is that for all of the noise that I, I don't know how, how much of this uh, sort of uh, reverberated in, in Ireland, but uh, the, the political noise and recriminations around Benghazi, you know, went on for uh, fast and furious for three years and spilled over into the 2016 campaign, a uh, presidential campaign. And as I argue in the book, it had a very substantial impact on the election. So uh, again, the irony being that for all of this, all of this noise, we Americans came out of this thing basically thinking that Benghazi was sort of a, a strange bookmark, a, a bump in the road, and other things were were uh, far more important. Of course, President Trump, you know, the fact that he was elected and all of that, you know, it's like we moved from one hysterical crisis to to many more, and it's gone so fast that we haven't had time to look back and say, "Hey, where did all of this stuff come from, and what what's what are the significant um, markers here?" And I think Benghazi has gotten lost in the in the fog. Yeah, I, I think you're right in, in saying that. I mean, uh, the, the whole US foreign policy from obviously 9-11, um, this is all wrapped up in that. Like the, the US had actually removed their embassy from Libya back in the 70s. Isn't that right? And then they had only just began diplomatic relations again, not too long before, before the attack. I was sent to Libya it was actually my first tour in the in in, uh, in the foreign service uh, in 2004 when uh, it, there was a progression of sort of small steps and it was a mission uh, liaison office at that point with a you know a few Americans there uh, and that was 2004. The embassy itself uh, was set up in 2006 and was continuous until the revolution and then we were there for a bit and then had to get out and then came back for a bit and then went to now, you know, we're based in Tun Tunisia. 
there was obviously spy networks, uh, you know, the CIA were obviously on the ground in Libya. What kind of noise, if any, did they pick up um, preceding the attack? Well, I'm, a lot of that is behind a behind a wall. Um, but there was a, this was one of the major points of contention after the attack was um, who, who knew what when? What was the nature of the attack? Was it related to a protest and a series of expanding protests that were taking place by earlier in the day? It was the anniversary of 9-11. There was an attack, a protest that morphed into an uh, sort of attack against the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. There were many other uh, U.S. embassies in the region, including Tunisia, that were later uh, later attacked, Khartoum, uh, there were incidents there, uh, Yemen. So the, there was sort of a, a, a broad perception that the in Washington, at least among some people, and at the very beginning, that the attack was somehow a copycat version of what was going on in Cairo. But as the years went on, it became... Uh, I think more clear to a number of analysts that this was, uh, in fact, a planned attack, and that there were linkages to uh, Al Qaeda proxies in Libya at the time, and that uh, Al Qaeda was essentially trying to quietly infiltrate Libya in order to reverse the revolution that was underway. And of course, this became a a political, heavy political issue. I think the Obama administration at the time was was very concerned about being tagged with the uh, Republican, you know, their, ad their political adversaries' claims that uh, they were soft on terrorism and that somehow, you know, after killing bin Laden, we're still experiencing these uh, these attacks, etc. So on one hand, you had a very defensive, defensive White House uh, that was also experiencing troubles in uh, Afghanistan at the time with the, the sort of the breakdown of the surge, um, which was thought. This is, this is another really interesting book was Craig Whitlock's uh, the Af uh, Afghanistan papers that went into the whole politics of, the, of Afghanistan, which was all all the stuff was happening around the same time in the fall of 2012. And the, you know, the, so you had this White House that felt besieged on all on all sides, and was essentially trying to sort of control the narrative, generally speaking, in defense against very aggressive Republican attacks on that very issue. Yeah, the, 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 it's funny because people don't sometimes think about that. So some of these battles are, and, and the result of them is what happens in, in Congress or in, in, in the Senate. It's all these, you know, it, it's these political arguments are driving policy thousands of miles away and they've got these huge ripple effects. Uh, and it's, yes, to, me, to me, it's an overextension though as well of, of, the, like, of what any one country can do all around the world, all at the same time as well. But but do take us into a little bit of the politics of, of what was going on um, in, in America at the time, pre-election. So, um, you know, I, I, I talk about this in the book at length, is where the, where the manifestation of concern within the Democratic Party and the White House particularly came from. There were a couple of, there was one event in particular that seems to have had a very, very uh, strong effect on, on the uh, sort of political calculus, um, which was the uh, two that Christmas 2009 attempted bombing of a an airline over Detroit by uh, which was linked back to uh, Anwar al-Awlaki in, in, in Yemen, one of the uh, Al-Qaeda 
representatives, leaders there, which, uh, you know, that was early in the in the Obama administration. And there was great concern that Obama's, I guess, Obama, President Obama first tried to sort of uh, stay above the fray and not not engage on the issue and play down the uh, the impact. He didn't want to encourage Al-Qaeda and and stir up uh, political issues. But uh, I think the, the White House and his advisors uh, realized that this was really, after the Republicans started making a big issue of this, that this was a going to be a problem for the next few years and there was this um uh sense that his his administration hung in the ba- the next his second term had hung in the balance so i think that those kinds of incidents and the increasing sort of play you know use of of us policy in the middle east as a an amplifier of of domestic political battles just escalated um and then of course you had the you had the and, and this was all wrapped up in the uh, Obama administration's response to the later to the Arab Spring all of the revolutions in the region that occurred starting in Tunisia in 2010 and then rippled across across the region and so you know it's sort of like um uh, well obviously the Bush administration didn't prevent 9/11 but it became a rallying cry for everything that was bad about the about the Democrats so here you can see the sort of very charged atmosphere leading up to the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Benghazi attack occurred right before the 2012 election. Uh, and so it was a very charged atmosphere. And there was g- genuine confusion about what was going on because I think we had very few assets. Libya always suffered from this sort of blind spot in terms of knowing what exactly was going on on the ground. And I think, um, you know, former me, Slain Ambassador Chris Stevens was one of the people who knew Libya and the city of Benghazi best. And of course, his actions were called into question right after the uh, the event. Was he reckless? Was the etc. Um, that's where the what the Bush administration had done in Libya comes into play because Gaddafi and the United States have a long history of tension um, around is. Everyone knows of the Lockerbie bombing, various other acts of of terror that he was linked to in in Europe against American targets, etc. Certainly, the, the the Brits had their had, had their complaints against Gaddafi as well with the assassination of uh, Yvonne Fletcher, the British policewoman who was uh, killed outside of the, of the Libyan embassy uh, in the eighties, and um, so. There was this, uh, after the Iraq war, there was this sort of remarkable reversal of fortune where the United States, in the in the shadow of Iraq, uh, along with the UK, decided to um, essentially rehabilitate Gaddafi, bring him in from the cold. There were a lot of factors around that. Gaddafi was clearly, for lack of a better term, freaked out by uh, the uh, action against Iraq and was genuinely, it seems, very fearful that he was going to be next on the list of U.S. Uh, at the time, actually, the irony is that the U.S. was very, and the neocons who were backing the Iraq war were pretty unconcerned with Libya. <laughs> so, um, but they also saw the advantages of engaging with Gaddafi as the as the uh, the Iraq war was sort of early on spinning out of out of control. Uh, Gaddafi could provide uh, business opportunity, you know, uh, oil and gas contracts. He could he could provide a uh, a framework for a uh, a democratic, uh, you know, if, if he agreed to reforms, he could provide an example of how uh, a forceful American foreign policy, you know, changed changed the region towards democracy. So it was a good piece of the- quasi theater in that in that, in that respect. Um, and he could provide a nuclear nonproliferation win, and as as in he claimed to have a a, a a nuclear program, which was in fact very rudimentary, but the Americans could come in and take take his WMDs out. 
And later it would turn out that some of these WMDs were left, the chemical ones were sort of left in country. Um, and and uh, the concern resurfaced after the, after the, after the revolution. That's in the whole other story. Um, but basically, as part of the so there's this this effort to to sort of uh, rehabilitate Gaddafi. The other advantage, as far, as far as the U.S. government was concerned, was that Gaddafi could provide, and the Bush administration in particular, was that Gaddafi could provide. They thought lots of intelligence on uh, Al Qaeda uh, and other uh, related groups because they were he he was their enemy number. And, you know, the Libyan uh, is, uh, radical Islamists were after Gaddafi. And in fact, you know, there's this whole other issue of whether the UK government had supported some of those uh, early attempts to uh, to kill, to assassinate Gaddafi. So then you had this this situation where um, the, I don't know if your your listeners remember, um, this has sort of been a, become an obscure event in American history, recent American history, but the U.S. had been uh, rendering or transferring uh, fleeing radicals from from uh, you know Iraq and, and Afghanistan to back to their home, to uh, willing third countries or their countries of origin for interrogation and torture. So the Lib- Libya was case number one of, of this. So after the the, the rehabilitation, um, the idea that there were. Um, you know uh, the, the exact number is not is not uh, known, but there were at, at, at least twelve high level renderings back to back to Libya, and this is where things get a little bit more murky. Is what exactly was going on? I think the both Gaddafi and the U.S. to some degree and the U.K. to some degree believed that a uh, flipping after you flipped Gaddafi, if you could flip the 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 radicals who who were opposed to Gaddafi, then the resulting entity would be a bit more stable, and the United States would get a would, would develop a uh, an ally within the pol- community of political Islam. So it, it, it starts to sound like a, a spy novel. It's a good spy novel. Well, it's 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 sort of a crazy now. Basically, what it illustrates is that the United States has gone. Every administration has gone from one position uh, to another to another, and then, of course, when the the Libyan revolution came, the Obama administration really had almost willingly tried not to uh, understand what was going on in Libya under the Bush administration because they thought this was going to uh, also uh, reflect uh, negatively on on them. So it was sort of like that's a Bush problem. We don't want to deal with it. But when the revolution actually occurred, basically nobody really knew who was in the mix doing what. And it's quite clear, as I argue, and this has been sort of over the years developed, that in fact the, the polit- political uh, Islam, which of course is a continuum of thought that basically makes p- political a- 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 activity and violence a tool of politics within a religion in which the powers of God reign, reign supreme. Um, okay. So the complexities of political Islam is also another yeah, for, for a different show. That's, that, that's a difficult, a difficult one to unwind. But, but that's it. Is it basically, we didn't, the United States, what I argue in the book is the United States really didn't understand. There's been a sort of a love-hate relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, since since the times of, 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 of the Egyptian nationalist leader, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was one of, of Gaddafi's idols. And, you know, every time the ruling government in, in, uh, in, in Egypt was straying towards the Soviets, for example, the, the Islamists became uh, you know, prospective allies, and if they, you know, so it's it's this constant game of who's against us, and can we find a proxy that can can uh, can help us get back at that 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 entity? 
It's, and, it's, re, it's reactionary politics, isn't it? It's just right. reactionary events just it. all the time. But the really concerning thing about in the, in the U.S. has been that since, you know, as time has gone by, and particularly as the um, Benghazi incident morphed into the Trump uh, administration, these foreign policy became essentially a proxy ground for domestic political warfare. It didn't really matter to many politicians uh, what was going on outside as long as they could use it against their, their political opponents. And that's where I think, you know, the, the real significance of Benghazi comes in. Part of the problem is you have this fog that, that, that descended. Americans got totally fed up with political recriminations around who was responsible for Benghazi. Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State at the time, her, whether she was, she was partially were fully responsible, or I think the Obama administration basically felt when the attack occurred that it, this turbulence could not possibly go on after the election. It's a tricky point as far as trying to tell this story as politically neutral a, a fashion as possible is that both sides are going to be offended by it to some degree about of the truth. My position was that the narratives that emerged after Benghazi on the left and the right were more about each other in, in, than, than they were about what happened in, in Benghazi. And that the Republicans and the Democrats both had responsibility for the, uh, for, the, for the swirling narratives, which then became completely toxic. And it's become so toxic that nobody wants to go back and take a look at, you know, where we, what was the story here? You know, there have been so many books on Benghazi, particularly in the, in the early days that came out with spinning these conspiracy theories. I've divided Benghazi books into essentially there's the right wing uh, polemics and then you've got the left wing uh, ap apologies, which are usually in the form of a single chapter within a, an Obama administration memoir. <laughs> and that's it. So I, the irony, you know, I, I, I was is that, you know, trying to get a book published on Benghazi 10 years later, uh, as I have, and I've been working on this for, a, for, for, for quite some time. Um, I mean, my personal story is part of this book. Um, that's what I think also differentiates this from others. It's I say, look, this is how I lived many of these, these events uh, over a long period of time and during the Benghazi attack itself. So I try to make it not not a dry read, but sort of weave the history into, in, into and, and my own experiences into the book. It, it's interesting how, how you came about to this. Obviously, you were driven to write this story, the you know, the story that hadn't been written from your own experiences. Like, I mean, I suppose you're, you know, you're you weren't just in the foreign service. You had come from a private enterprise background, Shell Oil. You know, you've been. You've well, been no. My, my time at Shell was was uh, was fairly short, but um, that okay, was a, okay. I did, did have a corporate. I had a mixed corporate NGO, NGO government background. When you joined the Foreign Service, obviously, you know there was must have been some sort of belief within you going, well, you know, we're we're on the right track. This is what we should be doing. And then you you know spend your time in Libya and what's happened after, and I'm sure that's coloured then how how you see events or how how you see the world differently now. Sure. I had, my, you know, I did my uh, PhD uh, on uh, uh, port competition in the in the Red Sea, and I was, you know, much of that was on U.S. government fellowships. And after nine eleven, I was, I felt okay. Um, you know, I, I actually had just just uh, left Shell and uh, was thinking, um, you know, I want to do something that that's meaningful and uh, uses my my language and regional skills. I mean, I'd been in and out of the region for a long time by that point. And, you know, so I felt there was a, you know, I really did feel a sort of a patriotic duty to go back and, and try to contribute something. And what I thought was, you know, I'd be lucky if I had, a you know, at least one really interesting experience. And I did get 
I did get that. Um, Libya in 2004 and 2006 was a really uh, fascinating place. Uh, a little spooky, a little crazy, you know, not a little cra crazy in terms of Gaddafi's uh, antics. And I got uh, sent off to to essentially be an observer at kind of many of Gaddafi's speeches. And they were sort of little pieces of, they were almost like operas in, the, in, in themselves. <laughs> and the black marble Ouagadougou Hall in Ouagadougou Hall in uh, Sirt. I grew to really love Libya. It's a beautiful country. The people are very, very interesting and warm. And um, I met literally thousands of people during that period of time and became attached to the place. And so when when the Arab Spring broke out, the revolution broke out, I was like, I want to, and I've heard this from other people who had similar experiences at the same time as I, like, I'd like to be back there and and be present during this. And looking back on this, this idea that I could come back and help facilitate American medical infrastructure building in, in during revolution seems to me almost crazy. But um, I, I mean, at the time, that's what I felt I had to do. And the book is similarly, it's sort of like, okay, I experienced these, these things. And I, I want to have a record of, you know, I was called before the Benghazi committee, which was the big Republican led investigation. And I, you know, there really wasn't in many ways, a, an avenue to get a get a word in edgewise. Questions were sort of yes, no. Was Hillary, Cl you know, is Hillary Clinton uh, the cause of all of all evil? Things like in, in, not in those words. Obviously, I'm being facetious, but yeah. and I also felt uh, some responsibility to Chris Stevens because he and I had had many discussions about what was going on in Libya, and I know his frustration. You know, I think there were a number of uh, of, of figures in the Benghazi again, for the lack of a better word, scandal that um, have been mis whose motives have not been examined. I mean, Chris Stevens, the ambassador, slain ambassador, was 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 uh, often described as reckless and clueless. Uh, there was this movie, Thirteen Hours, that came out yeah. uh, by an American uh, filmmaker, which essentially pre presented him as that. He was not clueless. He had an, he had something in mind. Both of us were there, essentially feeling that the eastern eastern part of Libya was spiraling and out of control, and that we needed, you know, if America is going to be involved something needs to be done quickly. I think the Secretary of State Clinton also uh, was behind that and had constraints of her own because she had this very complicated relationship with President Obama and the State Department was sort of sidelined due to polit domestic political uh, issues as well. The fate of the many decided by the small uh, personality <laughs> disputes of the few. It really comes down to that kind of thing, isn't it? But one of the other big themes, if I if I can go on a little, little yeah. bit longer, is that you know I think each each since nine eleven each American administration has essentially become more and more insular uh, with very different goals. Like the Republicans under uh, Bush, many of them, as is well known, sort of tried to engineer sort of historically uh, cohesive institutions to try to advance their agenda in Iraq, as is well known. And then when the Obama administration came in, there's a huge pressure to be the opposite of, of Bush. And the Obama administration was also, as I mentioned before, sort of shrinking in among uh, towards itself. They, many of them didn't trust that, you know, that, you know, it was there was a phrase, uh, no new friends that, that I heard many times that essentially it was a tight knit community and either you were sort of with us or were against us, which is a phrase that Bush used. Um, and that the bodies that were previously had other responsibilities like the National Security Council, which is meant to be a coordinating body of national security and foreign policy agencies in the United States became more of a bulwark or a defensive dam against uh, political attacks. So um, this also degraded the expertise 
in in, in U.S. government uh, circles. So you had a damaged, you know, uh, each of these. You take the CIA or the State Department. Each administration sort of, or the FBI. Each administration seemed to sort of harm the integrity of that process until you got Trump who basically, as many people have used this metaphor, sort of opened the doors and told everybody to leave. You know, when Secretary of State Blinken came into office, he said, look, the damage done by the Trump administration would, would to American foreign policy institutions would go on for decades. Um, we can never quite fully recover. Again, that assumes that history started with the Trump administration. The <laughs> there were administrations before this has been going on for 20 years and it's a major issue i mean essentially the this the politicization of 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 american foreign policy is sort of one of the lurking un unidentified uh, uh, villains of of american foreign policy and this is another impact of benghazi is Right after the attack, there was this sort of recoiling on the part of uh, many government officials and up from a very top to, to, to much lower, not to take risks, because that would mean uh, the danger of another political scandal, which would then result in people being hauled in front of committees. And so American foreign policy, even though this trend had started earlier, was increasingly isolation, sort of isol selectively isolationist. So I think, and we didn't at the same time as Benghazi, this the crisis in Syria was exploding, and that was a, there were there were many sort of critical points in these in these different revolutions that were going on, and we kind of missed the opportunity. You can try to replay history, and you never never know what would have happened, but there's a strong case to be made that the 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 go to reaction was sort of okay, let's 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 try to dodge a bullet here rather than intervene or try to see how we, we might be able to 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 help this situation. And the question is, does the America have the capacity to uh to intervene in a place like Libya and do things correctly? And people like former Secretary of Defense Sir Robert Gates, you know, argued before the intervention that no, it doesn't. So we can be as idealistic as we want, but unless we're willing to go there and put boots on the ground and help actively reconstruct the country, then we shouldn't meddle in the country's affairs. Yeah, exactly. And it sounds like, you're, you know, yourself, you're, you're a person with, it, with a heart in the right place and you're going out trying to affect change, you know, in a very real, tangible way for the people that, that live there. Um, I mean, the, um, like American politics to somebody from Ireland, it, you know, it, it does play out as this soap opera largely now i'm not saying you know we we, we don't know political system i think is completely right you know we kind of had a two-party system for many years we'd fina fall and we'd fina gale there's two irish words and yeah. you were either on the side of the the treaty that michael collins had signed with england so you were a blue shirt you were fina gale or you went with de valera who shot michael collins for signing the treaty you know ended up with the ira fighting the civil war so we had politics along those lines but in the middle was labor parties and there was progressive democracy Democrats and a few other different ones, but people just argued over things that were happening to the people on the ground. You had less of this thing where you, you know, what you have in America is this just absolute two party system with no room for debate other than, you know, you're either, you're, like you said, it's, it's, it's a closed shop. You're either with us or you're against us. And it's really, really clear like that. And all it is then is about, well, who gets elected and how much personally, right? Because it's one thing that's very different. In, in Ireland, you don't have the attraction. You can't go and get tons of money to go and fight a political campaign. You're not let do it. Okay, so there's there is money set aside from the the state purse essentially to go out, and you can draw from that, and you go and 
do your electioneering and all that kind of stuff. But with America, I think when it comes to the money, then you're then removing the the people that have, uh, you know, good intentions, let's say, let's say politicians do have good intentions. And then you end up with the people behind the politicians who are, you know, getting them voted in that don't have those same good intentions. And, you know, is the war like what, what you're, you're, you've been in there deeply. So what, what what's what's your experience or what's your opinion on that? Well, First of all, I think, um, you know, in, in foreign policy, the, the realpolitik of it is, you know, intentions are one would want to be guided by an overarching, you know, uh, hopefully progressive ideolo- ideology um, or, or mission. But intentions, you know, so many things can go, go you know, as, as you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, President Carter had, had the best of intentions um, and has been vilified for ever since. Um, you know, and one could argue, um, and ha- many people have, that in fact his, his presidency was sort of viewed through dark colored lenses. And in fact, he was a much better president than, anyway, you can you see where yeah. I'm going with you. But yeah. I mean, I, the, the basic answer is that I think, you know, the, the depolicization and demonetization de- of, of, of politics, as you just described in Ireland, is exa- exa- these are exactly the kinds of things that need to be done. The question is, in Amer- America, how do, you, how do you unravel all of that? Because the influence of lobbyists and, and, and you know, ca- campaign reform, all of these things are so deeply entrenched that uh, trying to reform uh, the system is very difficult. If you look at American politics now, of course, there has been a shift. Right now, there are many Republicans who are sort of reverting to more moderate positions now that Trump has left the scene, so to speak. You know, American history will go through waves of, you know, of of, of swings of the pendulum and um, ultimately, you know, who knows, maybe there'll be some solution. But again, that's where... You know, my, my one of my main arguments is that um, okay, if you talk about pillars of democracy, you have to make sure that your foreign policy and uh, national security agencies can do their jobs without political interference, or you're going to get junk policy that's going to come back and your empire or whatever you want to call the the, the the sphere of influence is going to shrink. The U.S. is one of the, you know, still a, a, a super economic superpower and will not cease to be one anytime soon. But its political influence, particularly in the Middle East and, and, and uh, other places, is waning. There's definitely a case for, for the whole overreach thing. And, and when you're talking about, I mean, the CIA in its original days was obviously just, you know, the, the, the select few. You went to certain colleges, all that kind of stuff. But it's it's kind of everyone's a CIA agent these days and you can see them online. You know, you've all these people that are ex-CIA offering their services and speeches and all these various different things and, and you know, freely talking about their roles within this secret agency so it becomes less secret uh, and i think what's probably obviously happens is there's a dilution in the skill sets of the, the of the the analysts and the contractors that go to work in these various different uh, uh, countries yeah well we don't have enough money i mean the state department is notoriously underfunded um and you know when you talk about security issues uh that system has been in place for quite some time when i was posted to libya we essentially had very uh, as i you know talk about in the book that we we had very very little uh overt security and it was known to be a danger you know that one had to sort of rely on the police state was going to protect us but again there were lots of, of of parties that might have wanted to disrupt the u.s uh libya relationship at that point and as the years, as the 
my you know two years there went on, I increasingly felt uh, uncomfortable. And of course, these you know there have been many you know, the 1998 attacks, the the attacks in was it 2003 or two, two, uh, 2004 2005? I can't remember on the uh, Saudi, uh, U.S. consulate in Saudi in, uh, in Jeddah. I mean, you have these these things keep keep coming up, and you know. Uh, clearly, more more money and and attention needs to be paid to uh, to security. I mean, you can't really lay that on the on the on the doorstep of, in this case, Hillary Clinton. The right has typically uh, uh, voted against uh, supplying uh, uh, funding more, uh, uh, allocating more funding for diplomatic security and 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 diplomacy. So. Uh, I, I, think- I, I, try, I try in the book to be as politically, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more on the left. I'm on the left side of things, yeah, but yeah. really try not yeah. to uh, to sort of inflict my own. Other than other than the sections that are are sort of very personal and you know say things how I think that see them, but I, I sort of try to in the book not to um, rely on. Uh, you know, it, it, I think there's me- plenty of blame to go around. So it's not a it's not a democratic. My, my impression of you, Ethan, is that you're on the on the people side of things. <laughs> Just, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you know. So it definitely comes it comes across. I mean, everything about your nature certainly would even meet you now uh, on uh, th- through Zoom. Um, where do you think then the direction of U.S. foreign policy should go? I mean, should should it really revert and become a little bit more insular? And um, you know, I suppose one of the lessons of uh, involvement in Afghanistan, particularly, and certainly Iraq, is that our way of doing things, our way of democracy doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Um, and there can be quite long roads on the way to something that might even look anyway similar to what we have. But I think that was probably one of the main misunderstandings of, of foreign policy at, at the start of the long wars, so to speak. Yeah, I think Afghanistan is a, is a is a great case. So is Yemen. Um, that that we have these perceptions of how things should should work, and we somehow don't. Again, here's where the continuity of policy comes in. We don't seem to learn the lessons of of the past very well. Uh, it's like every administration is relearning the mistakes of the you know, like the Obama administration with respect to Libya was was worried in its intervention of creating another Iraq. So it scaled down its uh, its uh, 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 intervention and let other people uh, bear the burden, but then created a diplomatic vacuum in which a political vacuum, which was exactly the 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 the, the major issue in Iraq. Right. Uh, so. Um, but Afghanistan uh, also, I think one of the there was a great uh, piece by uh uh, Rory Stewart on Afghanistan, in which he was arguing that um, you know a, a, a an overt acknowledgement of the local di- of local dynamics and what you could change, what you couldn't, and a consistent lower spend rather than a trickle. You know, it went from the, the policy went you know trickle of spend and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, to to a to a to a waterfall. And the the differences in scale would then uh, would elicit certain reactions that were sort of like ingrained ingrained in in the social fabric. So a I think the the major point of the piece this was in the foreign policy foreign affairs was that uh, you know a cons- long term consistent uh, but moderate approach that didn't attempt to remake society uh, in in some some uh, ideal uh, uh, manner 
would have had much better outcome than the, these wild swings as happened in Iraq as well uh, from one one uh, one party one party or, or ally to the to, to the next. Um, Similar to what you were trying to do in in Libya with the the vet, you were trying. It was a trauma unit. Is that is that what you were involved in, in involved in setting up? Uh, the idea was to basically um, uh, involve several different U.S. Uh, teaching hospitals uh, and uh, 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 NGOs in in solving immediate problems in, in health yeah. in healthcare. Um, emergency medicine was part of that, but only one part. Okay, okay, and, and they are real things that that people feel, and you know, it's it's a case of uh, attraction then, rather rather than promotion. Um, I don't think promotion works too well right across the world for anybody. We, you know, I don't I don't think we like um, other people. Te- no, nobody likes being told what to do. <laughs> Put it like that. Yeah. That's, the, that's the case. In in Libya, there's a story that that, that always resonated with me. The um, Esso, the former, uh, you know, the, the company that became Exxon, Exxon Oil. Yeah. But the oil companies have come have been you know vilified these days for obvious reasons. Um, uh, but the, the 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 corporate policy at that point was to um, create a fund to 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 advance educational opportunities in particularly science, anything related to obviously. From petroleum engineering to environmental science, other things in the United States, and the fund, this fund actually created this sort of this this core competency among very senior people who ultimately had, had to go to work for Gaddafi, basically, but um, had a a a great love of uh, or or feeling of warmth towards the United States, even if the public uh, 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 words were hostile. So I can't recall how many meetings I was in in which there was this sort of uh, you, know, you get the party line for the first ten minutes and then so, then the person would say and I went to the University of Arizona and those were the best days of my life you know so I mean there's a lot of ways that, that one can have an impact on on development and and perceptions of of uh, and you know at the end of the day I think most certainly at this point most Lib- you know Libyans feel they would just just like to get on with their with their lives yes. not have yeah. all of this constant violence death and destruction um I think that's and that's sort of a human uh that's human yeah yeah for, for sure and and what like you're with your wise head on your wise shoulders when, what are you doing these days Oh, I've been. Uh, I'm working on another another book. Very good. Uh, not on not on Libya. Uh, okay. <laughs> I've been doing some 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 things in um, uh, on the sort of environment tech side. Uh, yeah. Writing has always been a very um, a big part of my. Uh, it's, it's your passion. Yeah, that's it. Well, it's great. It's great to have. I mean, I, similar. Like I, I, I'm going following passions and, and that kind of thing now. Um, having done the the stint in the, the private sector and you know running a business and things like that, but it's great we get an opportunity to do things that uh, that that we love and uh, more more power to you. So I'd be interested to um, speak to you about your next book before uh, get, give us a drop before it comes before before it comes out. Um, but it's honestly, I've, I've I've always wanted to. See Ireland. I've never been to Ireland, and ah, I okay, I'd okay. Love to, uh, 
love to I, love to see Ireland. So um, I'll take you on the tour. You would like <laughs> it. If, I, I would say though, and for anybody thinking of visiting Ireland, I'm afraid you've probably missed the boat if you don't come in June. Consistently, it's it's where the weather is at. Other than that, you you might you know there's a reason we're so green, and that's the amount of water that we get. You know, so, right. uh, well, that's, <laughs> increasingly yeah. that will be an asset. Right. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> a, 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 absolutely. Um, and just to do due respect to obviously the other people that were affected by the um at, at the Benghazi attack. So there was there was uh, Chris Stevens, the American ambassador, and then there was three other Americans who who died um from yeah. the attacks. Is that right? Yes, uh, and, Sean Smith, Glenn Doherty, and um, Tyrone Woods. So I think we're two were two CIA. Is that right? Or two or, or con- just contract special, contractors? Special forces, special CIA forces contractors, yeah. and um yeah. and a, a Sean Smith was a was Stephen's um, information officer. So right, right, was... okay, yeah, God Almighty, yeah, no, terrible, ter- terrible end. But um, listen, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Um, yeah, it was a great pleasure. Thank you for. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd love to have you on again. You're a very interesting man, Benghazi listeners. Do do pick it up, uh, and uh, the book that preceded us actually would give you a really full picture of uh, what uh, what Libya is like. Um, so do do check it out. But Ethan Chorn, thank you so much. I hope we'll speak again sometime. Take I care. Well. All the best. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Listeners, really enjoy that. Um, Benghazi is the book. The author is Ethan Choran. Anything you kind of want to know about Libya and the ripples from it, you'll be well informed with this book. And may give you pause uh, to think about foreign policy um, around the world by various different actors, i.e. You know, governments. And really, these things are important. And the more we know and understand, the better equipped we are to the people in power that we know may have the best interests of the people, humanity at, at, at heart. And I certainly got that from uh, Ethan today. So thanks again, folks. Take it easy. Have a good week. Uh, and yet again, I can still see the sun through the uh, cracks in the container door. I'm heading out to that again, maybe hit the water and we'll see you next week. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here